Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, I'm Hadassah Stein. I'm a fourth-year medical student at SUNY Downstate. I serve on the Joma Teen Health Committee, and I'm an interviewer for the Joma Specialty Spotlight Podcast. The Specialty Spotlight Podcasts are geared towards pre-med and medical students interested in learning about different medical specialties. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Stacey Leisman. Dr. Stacey Leisman is a board-certified internist and nephrologist who practices nephrology at Mount Sinai Hospital. She is also an accomplished educator in the Econ School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Hi, Dr. Leisman. Hi, Adasa. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for being here. So our first question, why did you choose a career in medicine and what characteristics make one a good fit for a career in medicine? So this is a tough one. I probably chose to be a doctor approximately... I don't know, 27 years ago. So it's a little difficult, but I think what I recall is I entered college with no plan to become a physician. Um, I was a little bit all over the place. I actually entered college uh, wanting to be a Broadway actress. Um, And then I recognized that that was not the most stable career and um, probably would involve a lot of rejection that I didn't want to take. Then I decided to major in physics Um, and then finally settled on English. And so I was an English major. At the time, it was a little tricky to figure out what I wanted to be. Um, But I think one of the driving forces was I did a summer internship program at South Nassau Hospital um, that allowed you to see all different types of medicine. And what I realized is that I loved the two aspects of problem solving, that a person has a problem that you can solve, and getting to know the patients. I thought it was a really fantastic mix of being able to help people while using my brain to solve problems. And that is something I think I always envision myself doing. Yeah, I love the non-traditional background. I, I personally, <laughs> I did like regular chemistry, but I did minor in ethics. Um, and I think I, I love that sort of like creative sort of thinking that you bring into medicine. And I think it actually does help with the diagnostic process. I absolutely think people who come from humanities majors make fantastic doctors. The first couple of years in medical school, it may be a little bit harder if you don't have some of those backgrounds in biochemistry um, or biology. But I think overall, when in my case, I had to read a book and come up with a thesis and defend that thesis with evidence. And that is what I do as a physician. And that process of really being analytical and telling a story is very much in line with what people who are humanities majors need to do. The fact that it taught me to write really fast is also a good plus. My notes don't take as long as other people miss notes. So to speak to the second part of the question, what characteristics make one a good fit for career in medicine? I have a 
very interesting vantage point to answer that question because I'm not going to only answer it about me, but I work with lots and lots of medical students. And so I think the ones who really succeed in medicine are the ones who are curious, who are um, passionate about something, optimally passionate about medicine, but usually that's not enough. It's a very grueling path. And I think you have to be passionate about more than just learning how the body works, but learning how the body works and wanting to do something with that to help people. You definitely have to be a team player. Um, so much of medicine from medical school to caring for patients is a team sport. Um, so you have to work well with other people. You know, interestingly enough, a lot of people think you have to be good with patients. And I think that's a characteristic that's important, but not every person who goes into medicine sees patients. And so you, if you feel like you don't want to talk to new people every day, that's okay, because there's plenty of roles in medicine that don't involve talking to people every day. Um, I will say that the path is long and the path is hard. So you have to really be committed to going into medicine in order to do it. Um, it's not something you should go in because somebody's making you or somebody wants to go in. It, it has to be your own decision because you're the one who's going to have to be the one doing the studying. Yeah, I agree. I, whenever, you know, I, I say for me, it was a really good decision, but I think everybody um, independently has to realize if, if it's right for them. But if it is, I do think it's worth it with all the grind and the time. Yes, I love it. I love it. And I can't imagine doing anything else. I was just commenting to somebody on what I had done in a given day. And I said, I cannot imagine being in any other field. I think I would be bored. But my days are so different and so varied. I love it. It's, it's wonderful to hear. And I agree. <laughs> I love it too. Um, okay, so to speak to the second part of our question, um, why did you decide to go into the field of nephrology? So just like my decision to go into medicine, it wasn't something that I knew for a very, very long time. Uh, in fact, when I left medical school, I didn't, I knew I wanted to do internal medicine. I did not know what I wanted to subspecialize in. As I went through residency, a few things became abundantly clear. The first is I am terrible at procedures. So anything in a procedurally related field was immediately out, both because I wasn't particularly good at it and because I wasn't interested in doing procedures. Um, what I was interested in doing, you know, I'm the person who likes to do all the crossword puzzles uh, in the back of the New York Times Magazine, or, um, you know, I kind of liked Orgo because it was problem solving. And so nephrology has a lot of those problem solving where you're looking at numbers and you're trying to figure out what's wrong with the patient and how do I solve this problem? Um, I also discovered how it allows you to have these meaningful long-term relationships with patients. So one of the um, challenges that primary care doctors face is that many of them went into it to have deep long-term relationships with patients. And what happens is they have to cover so much in a short period of time at every visit that sometimes that gets lost and they can feel very rushed. For me, I see the same group of patients once a week, some of them for 10 years, 12 years when they're on dialysis. So when you see a patient once a week, you have so many opportunities to get to know them, 
One week you can talk about their problems that they're concerned about. One week you can talk about the problems you're concerned about. And the next week you can talk about their grandchildren or what they did over the weekend. And so that piece has been incredibly rewarding as well. Yeah, wow, I love that. I didn't know that part of nephrology that you can form that really nice patient relationship. I think most people don't because what they see in the hospital is patients who are getting admitted for a kidney problem. But when I see outpatients, I see them once a week. It's fantastic. Yeah. I also respect that self-awareness that you say about the procedures. I'm personally going for radiology, um, (laughs) not interventional. So I can kind of relate to that. But I think it people come sometimes into medical school thinking they're one way and then it's it's a little bit hard to let go of that self-perception in third year when you realize like, maybe this doesn't actually fit me. So I think like your self-awareness um, that this is a, a strength, you know, this or like something that you don't, you're not necessarily inclined to is um, very admirable. Thank you. I also want to just make it clear that anything can be done with practice. It doesn't have to be natural talent. And had I wanted to do a procedural field, I could have learned how to do it. Um, So I don't think it should dissuade you if you, that's, I think, a big problem that, um, you know, people who go to medical school feel that there's only certain things they're good at and they have to stick with that. But Mm -hmm. it's important to have this growth mindset, right, of I can't do it yet. Um, But in my case, I just wasn't interested in doing anything with procedures either. Yeah. I I happen to agree with that also. Like I, on the flip side, um, coming into third year, there's some things that you'll like never imagine you were able to do and then you're doing it and you're like, wow. So (laughs) (laughs) I know radiology is one that you don't necessarily know about before you go to medical school. Yeah, definitely. I, I had my own journey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so our next question Uh, what made you decide to make teaching a pivotal aspect of your career and what makes someone a good educator? So it's really interesting. I think in retrospect, teaching makes a ton of sense for me. So I went into medicine because I like understanding how things work and I like forming relationships with people. And I get to do that all the time as an educator. Um, I work with medical students, I run the first year physiology course in the medical school and so get to spend eight weeks pretty intimately with students, um, getting to know them and getting to teach them. And I think the aspects of wanting to be a Broadway actress actually come up here as well, right? I have to get on a stage and explain something or make people understand something um, in a way that makes sense for them and that speaks to their previous experiences so that they can, what we call scaffold it onto prior knowledge. And I think all of those, and I think I love solving problems, right? So the problem is how am I going to teach this person this thing? And what are the challenges that they're having? And how can I work with those challenges so that at the end, they understand the material that they're supposed to understand? So I think, you know, in retrospect, so many of the experiences that I've had really set me up to be a teacher. I think another really important piece about being a teacher is the goal has to be that you want to see your students succeed. It cannot be like an ego thing that I want to be on stage or I want this or I want recognition for my work. It really has to be that you make the changes that need to be made. If the way you're teaching something doesn't work, you scrap it um, because ultimately the goal is your student's success. 
and and that really has to be the driving focus of of what we do. Yeah, I actually was um, a teacher before medical school for a year, and hopefully, I also hope to incorporate that in my career um, in the in the long run. And I think actually, just like listening to you, your your like again, your literature background probably and your English background probably help with that, just because you're. I think like as a teacher, you have to be really good at taking the information in your brain and expressing it at in words. So. Um, I think like that, that those skills were, I guess, being nurtured from your undergrad. <laughs> and it's funny, you know, I know so many students and I think we're going to get this, you know, later, what I've done differently. I know so many students who come in with like a game plan and they have this game plan and they execute this game plan and they know exactly where they want to be in five years and 10 years. And they make a lot of decisions to get them there. And I was never that person, as you see, right? Like I, I just sort of fall into things that I like and I do them. And while I think there's such a huge place for that because the spontaneity has been fantastic. And maybe if I had this, you know, really defined five or 10 year plan, I wouldn't have gotten some of the opportunities that I've gotten to pursue. You know, I do think there's something to be said about having the game plan. Um, I think that you can set yourself up a lot better with the game plan. So I can't really, you know, figure out the right way to do it. Um, but I do think I wish I had a little bit more of that, that game plan. What people should I meet? What papers should I be writing um, in order to get to where I need to go? Um, so our, um, our next question, can you walk us through a typical day for you as a nephrologist and tell us why you decided to go into the field of nephrology? So I'm going to start by describing what a nephrologist is because I'm not sure everybody knows. It doesn't have the, um, the fame of cardiology or pediatrics. So a nephrologist is a physician who specializes in the kidney and diseases of the kidney. Because the kidney has a huge role in electrolyte balance and blood pressure balance and acid-base balance, we're also called to see patients who have those disorders as well. So my typical day as a nephrologist could involve seeing patients in a dialysis unit in the morning, um, rounding on my 20 dialysis patients, um, making sure everything's okay with them, um, and then coming to the hospital and seeing hospitalized patients uh, who have kidney problems or electrolyte problems um, in the hospital. Um, and then I write my notes and call the people I need to call, and then I can go home. The one thing I don't do, which many nephrologists do do, is um, I don't have a clinic. I don't see outpatients. Um, and that's just because I um, am not 100% nephrology. I have some other roles as well. But most of my colleagues will also see patients in an outpatient clinic for people with chronic kidney problems. So our, our next question, can you tell us more about your various educational roles and responsibilities? And how do you tailor your approach for each level of medication from medical students to fellows? So the majority of the work I do is with medical students. Um, I run this physiology course in the first year, so all students have to take that course. And I really think of my students as almost lay people. I really try to explain things to them as if they don't know anything about medicine. They do. They've taken anatomy and biochemistry, but 
medicine is a different language and you really have to be careful when you speak to to patients and you speak to students to not fall back on that medical language, whether it be from, you know, the way you describe body parts or the way you describe symptoms to the way you describe disease processes. You really have to take it down to a level that of examples or things they're going to be familiar with. Um, so I think having spent a lot of time with patients transfers well to teaching first-year medical students because you do develop that vocabulary of how to simplify complicated things. Um, I do teach some fourth-year medical students. I teach some residents and fellows. And I think it's it's part of that same idea, right? It's about them and where you want them to be at the end of the course or at the end of the session um, and tie it into things they already know about or things they've already seen. Um, that helps it stick a little bit better. Yeah, I can say um, looking back to my first year and my fourth year, a big thing is what you're saying is acquiring that language. So when you're just hearing conversations going on in the hospital, like, you know, patient is fluid overloaded, we give them furosem, like all these like words that just like it, it starts becoming part of your natural vocabulary so that you have to exert less mental energy mm -hmm. to tease apart even like the words that are being said so I feel like now like coming in my end of fourth year honestly a lot of my step two knowledge has like already waned at this point but I feel like that sort of vocabulary just when I'm walking through the hospital is what like I see as the most concrete change from my first year to my fourth year that now I can I can pick up on those conversations and like jump right in without looking everything up on on Google. I remember so. with labs as like a medical student, I never knew what normal reference ranges were so that someone would be like, oh, the potassium is six. And I'd be like, is that good? Is that bad? <laughs> I mean, now it's it becomes so simple. But at the time I had to look up, I just sat there with the reference ranges to looking up everything all the time. Yeah. I, um, so actually like in, in my school, we have a Brooklyn free clinic, which is like, uh, as medical students, basically a medical student run clinic. And, um, I volunteered as a first year and then I volunteered like as a senior and a fourth year that I had like a, a first year under me. And I was like, when I was explaining things to my first year, I'm like, I have to think how I felt as a first year in this Brooklyn free clinic. I didn't know anything. <laughs> so I was like, I have to talk in language that you know, like you're saying, how you would talk to a patient. Um, I think that is very helpful. Um, so, okay, so our next question, can you tell us more about your academic interests? Sure. So being in academia, which is where I've been my entire career, so about 20 years now, um, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think a lot of people believe that academia is uh, research plus clinical care. But hopefully one of the things people walk away from this podcast is knowing that academics is so much more. It can be teaching, it can be administration, it can be a combination of those things. And some people see patients in an academic setting and what that looks like for them is they can develop a niche in a particular disease process. So for example, there's lots of different types of kidney diseases. And if you see a general community nephrologist, they have to know and how to treat all of those different types of kidney diseases. At an academic center, you can be a 100% clinician and have the majority of your practice be kidney stones only or 
um, something called onconephrology, which is how cancer affects the kidney, um, not kidney cancer itself, but how other cancers or other chemotherapeutics can cause problems with the kidney. So you can be like a super specialist in academia. Um, you can do research, obviously. And then you can do what I've done, which is develop a career around teaching. So in addition to teaching students, um, I also have an administrative role within the medical school. What that looks like is I oversee the first and second year clinical curriculum, uh, first and second year preclinical curriculum. So I work with other course directors. Right now we are trying to um, create a new curriculum, which we're going to launch. Uh, we're going to launch in a year and a half. And so I'm working really hard on developing what that curriculum will look like, changing from kind of a more lecture-based curriculum to a more active learning curriculum. And how are we going to do that, both in terms of how we're going to teach it, what we're going to teach, the order in which we're going to teach. So a lot of curriculum development um, goes into that. And all of those roles are roles that you can do in academia. Um, and so I think knowing that means that if you are a person who is not into research and I've done research on mice and hated every second of it. Um, but if you think, oh, I can't do academics because I don't want to do research or I don't like to do research or I've never done research, it is so much more um, than doing only research. Wow, yeah, this is all news to me. It's it's really <laughs> interesting to hear. Um, and I, I also like the, I think the curriculum development is a really, it's an art. Um, like I know actually in, in my school, I do, I like make up some of the radiology questions with the, the radiology, like curriculum developers and, um, just my tiny, tiny role in it. Like it takes a long, long time. So, um, I, I can definitely appreciate as, like from from this side of it, but also as a student, when you have a um a a learning session that's like so satisfying and you learn so much, it's it's really nice to come away from that. That that should be the goal of everything. And so if it's not working right, we have to fix it. Um, and so it's fun to get in there and figure out, you know, problem solve. What didn't go right? How can we make this go better? Also, just like. I guess sort of side point, but so we have this like problem-based learning sessions that we would uh, go through like different cases. And I happen to very distinctly remember the um, nephrology cases um, and like just the, all those, I guess, electrolyte derangements and dealing with that. And it was pretty brilliant. I That's great it. to hear. It's really fun. <laughs> I like yeah. it too. Um, so our next question is a fun one. <laughs> you have some impressive videos of yourself singing online. When did you realize you had this incredible talent? Um, thank you. <laughs> That's very fun that you brought that up. Um, so I've sung my whole life. Um, I was, you know, in all my school musicals and then I went to college uh, and sang in college. Um, and then I gave it up for a while because, you know, life got in the way and then something bigger got in the way, which is called the pandemic. And when we were stuck at home, at that point, my husband and my daughter had been taking guitar lessons for like a year. Um, and we were stuck at home and somebody started posting videos on Twitter under the hashtag docs who rock. And I was like, I'm stuck at home and I am bored and I can do this. So I 
roped my husband and daughter uh, into doing these videos with me. And in all the videos, uh, one or both, I think we did a couple with both. Um, and we just put our videos online of us singing and playing guitar. So that was very, very fun. I am really thankful we no longer record videos now that life has resumed and I leave my apartment a lot more. That is a nice use of the pandemic. <laughs> I mean, you know, I didn't bake that, though. I, so <laughs> was that, was that a goal to bake? No, yeah. never. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm fine with not being able to bake. That's why bakeries exist. This is true. But my yeah, daughter I, loves to bake actually. So she bakes for me. The one who doesn't like to play guitar. Oh, really? Um, is a really good baker. Mm. Multi-talented family. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of nice. Cause like, you know, obviously the pandemic was a struggle for everyone, but you took it and made something beautiful of it. Thank you. Um, so our next question, if you could go back in time, given the experience and perspective you have now, is there anything you'd want to have done differently? So I think I said having more of a game plan, um, I think would have been helpful. The other thing that I really wish I could have done being on the other side is gotten to know faculty as a medical student and a college student. I really never got to know faculty. I just always assumed they were too busy or I didn't really know what to say to them, or I was too nervous to talk to them. And I just did my own thing. And now on the other side, I can tell you that the people who go into medical education, like 99% of the time, love getting to know students and love getting to hear from students. And from a student perspective, you know, having people who know you and know you well is an amazing thing to have. They can mentor you, they can give you advice, they can make connections for you. So reaching out to your professors or to a person who does something that you think you may want to do and make an appointment to shadow them for a day, um, find connections with mentors is something I absolutely wish I would have done. Um, and then, you know, from a selfish perspective, I'm not sure the people who wrote me letters for medical school or for residency, like really knew me because I knew them for a couple of weeks and then asked them to write a letter, but how much more impactful and meaningful would a letter have been from someone I had worked with for multiple years and really gotten to know? Yeah, I think that is really great advice. I I mean, once I chose my path in radiology, I started more like really making an effort to know the residents and the attendings in the department. Um, and it's, it is really nice to like, even today I had like a number of residents reach text me and they're like, Oh, what happened? And like, we're rooting for you. So it's, it's really nice, like for the, for the mentorship perspective, but also knowing that people really care about you. I, I absolutely, absolutely agree. And then, you know, the other piece of it, that's super important is that I think as schools are changing up their admissions criteria and as certain, letter grades are going away or as, um, you know, in college, there's been a lot of grade inflation reports, right? So everybody on paper starts to look a little bit the same. So having somebody out there who's willing to make a phone call for you or say, you know, this person's amazing, you'd be crazy not to interview them, can be incredibly helpful uh, in setting you apart from somebody else. Yeah. Um, so our last question, what advice would you like to leave the pre-med and medical students listening to this podcast with? 
So I think the pre-med students, I would say this is an amazing career and you can hear sometimes some bad things about the state of medicine or the state of insurance. The state of insurance is a disaster. Um, but I think it is so rewarding and I love it. And then for both the medical students and the pre-medical students, I would say that um, an MD or a DO is an incredibly versatile degree. So the things you thought you might be doing in five years or 10 years may be completely different from the things you end up doing. There's a tremendous amount of flexibility. You can pivot, you can change the focus of your practice or the focus of your career. Um, so don't expect what you're doing or what you think you're going to be doing to be the thing that you ultimately end up doing. I certainly was, you know, today is a really big day. It is the day that the fourth year medical students find out if they've matched. And I reached out to our fourth year medical students to say that I never even knew my career was possible as a fourth year medical student and that your priorities and your perspectives and your passions can change so much over the course of 20 years. So be open to that and really let your opportunities make more opportunities for you. That is wonderful advice. And for me as a fourth year, it's definitely very encouraging. Yeah, you're all going to be amazing. And <laughs> just as a shout out for Hadassah, she found out she matched today. So congratulations to her. Thank you. We just have to wait four days to figure out where. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Hadassah. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A.org, or email us at health at joma.org.